Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. Today we are speaking with Sina Maraji, the founder of Learning Loop. It's a data company specializing in learning distribution and discovery. Thank you very much for being here with us today, Sina. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's my pleasure. So I'm always curious with every single founder. Take take me back. What's what's the founding story? What led to launching Learning Loop? Yeah, happy to share. I think there have been a bunch of life experiences that I've had. Um, uh, from the time I was six-year-old in primary school all the way to high school and then university and even after that when I worked that have brought me to this point to want to work on this problem. But the thing that all of them have had in common was, well, two things. One was that they've all really broken my heart into a lot of pieces to the point that made me think like, okay, the only way I can just put these pieces back together is if I spend every day just working on this problem uh, in a way that uh, I think is efficient. And the other thing is that on a more uh, specific level, all of these experiences I had involved a student being abandoned in their learning journey by the system that they trusted would be there to help them fulfill their potential, whether it's the school system or online learning system or all of that. And I think I've seen that um, happen to so many people in my close circles uh, at so many different stages in so many different ways that I'm like, you know, why have we built a system in which 20% of people can activate, get activated and fulfill their potential and the other 80% kind of live a lifetime without knowing what it is they can love and be great at. So that's um, the short version. Maybe if I want to pick one or two of those experiences uh, quickly, I think the first one was primary school. My mom is a teacher. Um, I went to a kindergarten in which it was all about playing. There, there was no grading. There was no such thing as like actively. I didn't really know what, I mean, there's no such thing as learning or classes. I mean, we were learning stuff, but it was there's no com com competition or comparison. But in primary school, obviously, it was very different. Within the first few weeks, I realized that I am considered a smart student, and my best friends from kindergarten were all lazy students because they were not getting good grades. And that was very traumatizing to me because it, I just couldn't comprehend that, like, what, why is that happening? Like, you know, why are and, and the other thing was that the teachers would move on if somebody couldn't catch up. And that was such a scary segmentation there, yeah. Uh, it was. You, you get moved into a separate class, or you get moved into a separate seating. You 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 essentially are dividing straight from the beginning, yeah. Precisely. And as a kid, that was new to me because I had never seen something. That was the first time I was in a social system outside of family that had some categories of classification. And I had this unfair advantage, which was my mom being being a teacher, so I could ask a lot of questions from her, get my answers from her. The other students didn't have that. So growing up, I saw that and I would always try to use my free time to teach the other students kind of. So, so through that, I developed a lot of, I guess, empathy and insights in terms of some of the, a lot of the challenges of learning, especially when um, you're left behind. Um, then at university, I think there was a similar experience in which, again, I felt like the quality of the computer science education that I was getting was nowhere near what I had seen on Twitter because I grew up being on Twitter and seeing people in tech and I knew it was really fun, but at school, it was, like we, I remember at one point 
we went to two hackathons over 48 hours and I built two apps. And at university, we spent six months and we, I built zero apps. And I'm like, there's no way this is going to be a good education. Even our top grads were struggling to get a job. So at that point, unlike school where I had, in a primary school, you can't do anything. Whereas in university, you can skip classes, you can build your own thing. I started a student club, um, made a curriculum out of Twitter based on what I thought made sense for us to learn. Called a bunch of startup friends and asked, you know, can you guys come in and teach us for free uh, and learn and hire whoever you like? Um, and one startup CTO came and did that. Then a few weeks later, he came back, brought more people, more students joined. This went on. I had to build a team, manage that, raise money in sponsorships to handle it and so on. And a few years later, my, myself and a lot of my friends doing that, we had landed up, landed like high paying tech jobs, doubling and tripling our starting salaries. And it was at that moment where I realized, okay, I've always known that education has been broken, but I never kind of had a clue on what does it take to solve it at any scale. But sounds like now I have some insights operationally on at least doing it for one faculty. <laughs> so then I, I went down to your own hands. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's all, it, it was always about a problem in my mind. I never had any clue of what does the solution looks like, you know? So now I was like, okay, at least I know how to do this for one faculty and one major. What does it take to do it for more topics, more people, more cities, more countries? And that led me down the rabbit hole of product management and venture capital and kind of understanding how the ed tech industry works, understanding how other industries have done personalization. Um, because at the core, this is a personalization and distribution problem that um, how do we get to the point where we can have one education system per person instead of one education system for everyone? You can get one Uber, Grab, or Goja car for you instead of, like imagine if you open your phone and order the car, and instead of getting one car that shows up, you get like 100 buses that come and block the road. Um, <laughs> that's what's happening in learning. You Google how to learn something, and you get like $3 billion, and you give up. <laughs> and that's cool. Like no one cares about you because there are 50 other students who are better than you. And I'm like, you know, that that's, I guess, all of these over the past, I'm 27, so since I was six until now, I've been thinking about these stuff daily. and. Yeah. <laughs> does that answer your question? It it does. I mean, it's 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 one of those instances where a founder realized firsthand experience of the problem and then kind of obsessed over how do I solve this? Uh, it's it really ingrains that uh, that problem statement into your own personal life and and develops the passion in regards to how to to solve it. So tell me on the solution, let's talk a little bit more about learning loop and how yeah. you're addressing it and how you're solving this problem. Can you can you give me a little bit more insight on how the how the model functions? For sure. Um, I'll just give a tiny bit of context before that. On one of the things that I when I when I usually explain the stories that led to this, I never include this. Um, but one of my friends recently said that I should. So after university, I worked at a company called Superhands in Malaysia, uh, which would help AI companies um, make sense of their the data that they had collected over years and decades so that then they could create personalization in their industry. And I noticed that I, the clients that we had were from agriculture to transportation to telco, banking, finance, entertainment, pharmaceutical, you name it, but never from education and learning. Um, so that was one of the major, I guess, aha moments that I had on the scaling solution level, because when I realized millions of people are learning the same stuff every day and week and month and year, but if you want to learn that same thing today, you're on your own and you start from zero. There's no feedback. There's no trace of how other people like you learn that thing so that you can just copy it and you have to filter on your own. Um, and so at learning loop, I guess that's where I start. On the one hand, there are all these high level, you know, problems about education and all of that. But very specifically, we're trying to solve one problem. If you, so every year for the past 20 years, 
more and more and more people have been going to Google to find out how to learn something. If you want to learn how to code, want to learn how to meditate, how to invest, move to a new country, how to, what to study in university, how to be better parents, anything. So more and more people are Googling how to learn stuff on Google every, every year. On the other hand, more and more and more people and companies are producing content for all of these. So, and this has been going on for 20 years, over 20 years. So we're at a point where no matter what you want to learn, you get billions of results and not a single place on the internet to tell you, here are the three that are most useful for you. So Learning Loop is that. We're building a company, a platform that is a knowledge distribution engine so that we can filter the internet based on other people like you. Because the, the learning behavior is happening. It's just no one collecting feedback. And no one's trying to tag and annotate that feedback and the learning content and organize the knowledge on the internet to say, OK, if you want to learn programming, here are like 10,000 people who, like you're from finance background, 10,000 people came from finance background say this one is the best resource. Like, why shouldn't that exist? At a time where we have companies like, we have, we have that level of filtering recommendation in food delivery, in transport, in, in every part of our society, but just not in learning. So yeah, that's our specific offering, a place where you can find the best ways to learn anything by filtering how other people like you um, did it. So, so you, you're, bas you're basically looking at an abundance of supply uh, of content that's out there, massive libraries as people continue to crank out more content on variety and obscure items to more high uh, high usage items. And, and there's obviously good search because you've referenced Google and so forth, but it's the filtering. It's being able to sort through the thousand school bus example as, as you gave where the real value proposition lies in being able to effectively curate and be able to surface the best examples and provide the highest level, the most appropriate recommendation engine uh, based upon individual user behavior. Am I right? Absolutely. That's, and, that's... and it was one of my biggest curiosities that it seems to me that the supply exists, as you mentioned, lots of great content. So those 3 billion results that Google offers, there's a high chance there's at least one thing there that will solve your problem. It's just that life is too short to find it. Um, some people are better at it. They go to Reddit and Quora and all these forums and try to find other people who recommend it. And then you narrow it down from 3,000 to 300. I mean, still a lot, terrible, but like much less. Uh, most people are not, I guess, savvy enough to go that far because um, most people haven't ever learned how to learn. Um, but so I take a step back and I realize, okay, there is supply, there is demand. The matchmaking is failing in between. Um, and so I took some time when I was at Superhands. I asked, so I went to the world's famous, most famous edtech companies. When you hear the term edutech, whichever company that comes to your mind, I've talked to some engineers and product managers there. And I asked them one question. Why are, like, why don't I see any of your companies ever approaching companies like us, Superhands at the time, to label your data? Like, don't you have prediction models? Don't you want to recommend? Don't you want to personalize? Is there a legal issue? Is there a technological blocker, like why? Why is every industry trying to do this, but not that tech? And turns out all of them, regardless of country or company, all of them said the same thing, that we want to do it, the engineers and product managers want to do it, but it doesn't match the quarterly OKR. And I'm like, so what is your OKR? They're like, we need to make it, more, make it sell more content. And I'm like, okay, so you're an engineer. How are you going to contribute to making and sell, selling more content? They're like, well, the marketing team is going to put a million dollars in ad and we're going to have a lot of traffic. We need to make sure the website doesn't break. 
So, and, and that's an engineering career at an edtech company in 2022 and 2021 <laughs> and for the past 10 years. So I'm like, to me, the hardest thing about solving that problem at tech is not that, oh, it's hard to figure out supply demand matchmaking, whatever, but it's, there, is, there are not enough organizations whose business models and product is defined and the hiring is set up to solve that problem full time. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like, it's, it's not rocket science. Most, <laughs> most industries have a reasonably decent distribution. Like, hmm. you know, you open an app to order food. Like, you don't, it, you can categorize, you can filter based on distance, based on a bunch of things. It, filtering is actually not too difficult. Like an 80% accuracy is not impossible. So sure, 100% accuracy is really hard. <laughs> we have self-driving cars, 96% accuracy. Like we, we don't have a place that tells you here are the top five places for you to learn something. I'm like... <laughs> It's just a matter of time, but you know, um, because nobody has done it, everyone assumed that maybe it's impossible. But when you talk to people, when you try to understand every step in the operation of edtech companies and every step in the AI value chain from collecting data to annotating it, to prediction models, to monetizing prediction models, you realize you just lack organizations who are making a conscious choice to pull this off. <laughs> so I'm like, let us be the organization or let us be one that just is loud enough to get more people to want to build such organizations too. So, so let's take a look at that operational because there, there are a lot of pieces of that in order to unpack. One, one of them, I guess, is, is on the annotation side because that's really the driver behind your capability to curate and properly recommend uh, pathways, uh, the actual appropriate learning loops to, to, to use the company name in, in it. Um, so how do you, how do you start? What was, what was the starting point of being able to build that out? And also relatedly, how has that evolved over time as you've learned your lessons from building it out? Great question. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right about annotation being like the part that makes or breaks all of this. Um, there are a few different mental models that I will share. Um, and then I combine them. To, to for my argument in answering. Because in a sense, this is a vertical integration of a bunch of things that already exist. They've modeled, other companies have done it, there are benchmarks, it's just said we need to do them in order and then stitch them together. Um, at, first of all, we have to say, okay, we can't solve, we don't wanna start off by solving the learning problem for everyone across every topic. Let's pick one topic, one audience who has very burning learning needs that are unmet for which there's enough content in the world. Right, so find a place there's strong demand, strong supply, very clear value proposition so that we don't need to convince people that, hey, you need to learn this, but the matchmaking sucks so that we can focus on that transparency and that matchmaking. Um, and we narrow down a bunch of groups. My favorite uh, was, and it still is, um, mid-level software engineers in Southeast Asia. Um, now, why? Because first of all, a lot of software engineers are introverts. Um, Mid-level software engineers in Southeast Asia are still introverts. And in Southeast Asia, there's a shortage of senior engineering managers. Because when you become senior enough as a software engineer in this region, you join a company that pays you in USD. So then the local companies usually don't have enough senior people. So if you're a mid-level engineer in a company in Southeast Asia, chances are your manager is slightly better or worse than yourself. And you're an introvert and you can't do the whole politics, so you're stuck. So two years, three years, same salary. Every day you wake up, how do I make more money? You have no idea. And there's no career uh, tracks because the HR is not engineering focused in the region. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> so you are waking up every day. That's your hair on fire problem. Like, how do I grow? How do I grow? And you are savvy. You're Googling everything. Uh, you're used to Stack Overflow, whatever. So the friction is low. But then there the question is, 
what you seek badly is advice you can rely on. So we came up with, I mean, we came up with not just, I mean, this may sound very specific and, you know, good fit, but we came up with maybe 10, 11 groups like this, all are as strong. Um, and say, you know what, let's now, <coughs> excuse me, let's narrow down, pick one, um, get a hundred um, users in that segment and offer one learning experience for which we do not hire a teacher and we don't produce any content. All we do is matchmaking. Now, let's keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to it. Another thing to, so that's on the, the idea just narrowing down. That's one step. Let's narrow down audience, market, topic, all of that to manage complexity, to increase our chance of success. On the other hand, something I've learned about learning is that it's very much learning like a, like online learning is like a rocket launch. Um, if you are a space company, you want to launch a rocket, there are, for your operation to succeed, there are two sub operations that need to succeed at the same time. Uh, you, one of them is you need to have a carrier to take this payload to the space station and the carrier, the, the, the rocket, if that goes from the ground up there, if it, if it explodes halfway through, it doesn't matter what the payload was that you're, you fail. And the other half is the payload. If you have a broken payload and the carrier delivers it, that's still a failure. In online learning, there is such a dynamic as well in which you need to win users' attention first because... And, and then you need to help them learn because learning itself is attention intensive. There are apps out there that are super sticky that people pay to use every day for a year, but they don't learn anything. And there are apps that have the best lectures and content, but nobody, the dropout rate is 95%. So, <laughs> and the operation that takes to build an engaging and sticky product is completely different from the operation that it takes to teach like to, to help someone learn but we can't say oh let's build a sticky app first and then we figure out learning or let's build a learning app first and then we figure out stickiness because the team you build for each of these becomes too different like you can't suddenly say okay we have a team of 30 we're a great sticky app let's fire some of them and get a bunch of learning it's you get stuck in whatever you start with so uh, the one so coming back we were like we pick our audience and topic and so on but at the same time, we have to make sure that the experience we deliver to these people, number one, is educational in the way that is meaningful to them, which is salary growth. Um, on the other hand, it should be sticky because if they close that tab, then that's, that's you know, we were done. So ran a bunch of iterations for that audience and other audiences. Um, and iteration after iteration, launch one week, get 100 users, they try it. Okay, interview all of them, go back, what worked, what didn't, and so on. Many, 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 many iterations. And now we've reached a point where, um, and that was like really scrappy and manual. And as a team, we've learned from it. So now we're at a point where we, we we're, we're, I guess we've recently launched our public beta. Um, one of the biggest learning was uh, that, I guess we would, we would switch these audiences a lot based on many different, um, I guess, dynamics, purchasing power, um, I guess the market size and all of that, because we are still building a business and we are still building a company. So it's very important to choose that attack angle very carefully. Um, but yeah, we're at a point where we recently launched. Uh, we decided that our public beta audience would be startup founders because we founders are a group of people. We need to learn for survival. Uh, but finding reliable content is extremely hard. If you want to search for um, series A fundraising advice for B2B manufacturing companies in Southeast Asia, like it's in some people's head. It's not written anywhere on Google. Uh, but we have access to a decent network of founders. Um, and we concluded that for us to build strong network effects initially and to you know, do the matchmaking, it's, that group is much better than individual software engineers who don't have a network on the ground. 
uh, you know, that we can then leverage to uh, build a network online. So the learnings have been a lot. I mean, yeah, we, I think it might be easier for it to come out after the conversations, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with, I'm pretty excited about our launch and like the experience that we're delivering to founders right now. <laughs> I think it's really interesting the, the the segments that you focused on because the the both the, the mid level engineers as well as startup founders you're talking about two areas that are fairly opaque for for all intents and purposes although there is a lot of information especially on the startup side there's a massive amounts of information out there but unfortunately a lot of it is actually not so good uh, so it's hard for individuals to kind of sort from the good and the bad and be able to actually surface quality because that's that's the core aspect and now you're talking about the time spent the effort spent in order to dig through and dig through and dig through just to be able to extract some useful information that can move you along your journey i think i think that's that's re that's really fantastic um, yeah i do want to add something on the annotation part because i realized i went on a well i explained a lot of the angles but not the annotation before i forget so i think the excuse me annotation side um the most important part really comes down to recognizing what creates trust between user and that content and in what way for each in each topic in what way do people want to filter knowledge um if i'm a seed stage you know founder b2c and etc in this region and so on who do i want to get advice from for this topic so we first recognize that as a company we need to take an opinionated approach to setting the taxonomy and filters for each topic and audience that we launch but we crowdsource uh, the actual content that comes in and gets rated and filtered by users. And that's like the balance we get between some degree of centralization to ensure quality, but then decentralizing so that there is enough diversity of um, knowledge on the platform. Um, in the case of startups, for example, for you to, to filter startup advice on learning group, you can filter it based on region, industry, funding stage, is the founder first time, second time founder, et cetera. Uh, so there are still initially, there might be a lot of knowledge there but when you filter it it brings it down to two or three you know who they are it's not it's not just telling you here is a great seo advice for example it says this founder who is running a series b b2b company said they used the content of this seo article to audit their seo and they grew organic traffic by 25 percent in three months that is a lot of context that makes it suddenly like very different from just a random article without any context yeah, yeah, yeah. That it, it definitely becomes more useful when the information is contextualized in order to be able to be surfaced and discovered more efficiently. Well, I want to circle back to one thing that you had said because you were you were talking about the prioritization of efforts operationally and building it out. Do you go for the sticky? Do you go for the payload? This is a common problem across any type of startup that somebody's building. So I'm just kind of curious of how you approached it from a logic standpoint, when you were planning out your product roadmap, when you were planning out the operational focuses for month one, month two, Q1, et cetera, et cetera. How did you actually lay out the game plan? What was the thought process there? Um, that's a great question. I think that is a place where I've been, I've been iterating on that and learning about it in the way that I iterate on the product itself. Like I have a change log document for my team structure. We don't, I don't change it too frequently to, to create chaos in team, but um, you know, our company is 13 month old. Uh, I have had to change the model a lot. And just as a team, um, we 
really monitor weekly and also like monthly to see, okay, what is work based on our first principles is really the easiest. If we're delivering some value to a hundred people, are they actually benefiting from this? Is this actually useful to them? Uh, in based on the intention that they had that brought them here and how much effort is it taking us to pull this off? If we want to do this for a thousand people, does our effort grows by 10 X or no? Can we keep the same effort, but actually reach 10,000, a thousand people and deliver the same quality. So it's always really looking at um, those two metrics, like what's the ROI for the user and how many steps is it taking us to achieve it? Like ideally the amount of steps we, like the amount of steps we take, uh, the input that we put in shouldn't grow proportionally to the output that we're producing. In fact, it should be very visibly disproportional. Uh, so that's the primary thing. Uh, my job, I think I, every day when I wake up, I mean, I'm looking at that, I'm thinking about that every week or uh, every week I go to a Slack, our team Slack, and I write down what's on my mind. And I encourage my team members to do that as well. And by doing that, whenever I feel like we're putting too much effort to achieve something, I come to the team and say, we need to take some steps out. Uh, like we, we, because we, we, have, we can't say, let's go six months without thinking about operational complexity, and then we come back and simplify. No, every week, like how can we achieve the same stuff with less effort next week? Um, yeah, so, but at the same time, I guess I've been so, um, heartbroken by the whole learning problem that no matter how deep I go into the operational part, that part is still very intuitive to me that I can talk to a user. I, and I think my team as well, because before we met, we've all been obsessed with this uh, in our, through our own journeys. So we don't fool ourselves. Like we look at users and we can tell like, is, would we use this or not? If we don't use it, like let's, let's not continue this. Let's, let's change something. I, I love how it continually centers around a constant iterative approach of looking at it, going back, looking at it again, testing it, te coming back and back and back. I mean, it's 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 kind of the nature of building a startup, but I think a lot of times, similar to the way that you've used loops in, in, in the company name, there's feedback loops, external, internal. There's so many different ways of being able to collect information so that you can in constantly look at operational efficiencies, product development efficiencies, and make sure that overall the company continues to move forward at a pace that is appropriate. Totally. I, I've told my team many times, like, I don't believe it can be a learning loop for the world if we're not a learning loop internally. Um, and then that comes down to how many things we can try in a week or month and how many, how much feedback we can get and how fast can we act on that. Um, a lot of that also depends on are we as individuals, are we learning machines or not? Like, are, are we reading all these newsletters that everyone else in our networks are reading? Are we listening to all these podcasts and books? And it, like, we joke in our team a lot that like, because all of us are, so if one person doesn't for a week, there will be a significant IQ difference in that week for that person, because suddenly <laughs> we all became more intelligent that week. No, no, but we're, no, but, no but we're kind to each other. <laughs> <laughs> but we're kind to each other. We don't, I mean, um, both internally and generally, like when it comes to our product, I feel like learning is one of the things that is very underrated about learning is uh, that it's not just an intellectual exchange. It's also very emotional because that when you're learning something, you feel temporarily incompetent and how people respond to that is very different. Some people get pumped up and that they, they, they get a kick out of that. They get a dopamine boost. Uh, my hunch is that people who do that, I mean myself as well, it's because of early child education that whenever you would get a good grade, someone would tell you, good job, well done, you're smart, you're doing great. 
Whereas majority of the population actually doesn't feel that way about learning because to them, learning is a trigger of insecurity and inadequacy going back to childhood where someone would tell them, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, that kid is better than you, all of that. So, so it is important for us to be conscious about that in our product, but also even internally in our team, I'm very conscious. I don't want to make, like we, we talk a lot about learning, but it's very important to me that our product or our learning habits shouldn't make each other or users feel inadequate in any way. Um, yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly understand. Let me let me center on to this 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 team aspect. It's one of the things that I hear from a lot of startup founders is honestly how difficult it is in the early days of building out a team, getting the resources in place, making sure that you're developing the the onboarding processes, the company culture, all of these sort of characteristics. I'm curious of in the early days, how did you go about building your initial team? And since you since you have been been going on now, has this evolved as you've implemented perhaps your own learning loops into your team structure? For sure. I think two very good questions. And I think as a first time founder, I've been learning the hiring part the hard way. Um, Although I've been in this, like I've been in the start circles for a while, I was a product manager, so I was involved in interviewing people in my previous job. So I guess I would, I didn't exactly start from zero, but still being a founder and hiring and being responsible for someone's income and then potentially needing to fire someone. Those are things that is very hard to read about it and then just seem that, okay, I get it. I had to, I only learned them when I actually experienced them. When it came to hiring, um, um, initially my first hire was my um, university best friend. Uh, with whom I had built that student club, um, among other people uh, that, I, that I mentioned. So I, she was a software engineer. I called her right after I raised my first bit of angel investment, which is 30,000 USD. Um, I called her and say, hey, you know, like that thing we did at university, I'm trying to do it for, you know, everyone. Um, you should quit your job and join me. And she did. Um, so she joined me as a community manager because at, at that iteration of the product, the community was extremely important. We had a Discord community. Um, so she joined us and then after that I hired, uh, so we started off and then later on I realized, okay, I want to get two interns, one growth intern to kind of um, create content and, you know, like try to raise some of our, one of our metrics, which was at the time, weekly number of messages by users in community. I was like, I want an intern. I don't really know who I should hire. Maybe I will hire an intern and they learn, but I'll, I also become an intern in hiring and I see if that role is good for the company. Uh, and I got another intern, which was a web design intern. Uh, so went with that and I guess I, then I converted the web design intern into a full-timer. Um, a few months later, I was, I was kind of evaluating um, our performance and growth and learning as a company. And I came to a really painful and difficult uh, realization, which was, and it's even hard to say it now. I was like, I noticed we were paying like a, we were spending money like a team of four, but we were learning like a team of two. Um, which, I mean, when I was an employee, I don't know how it would feel if if I heard a founder say that. Maybe I, I hope I don't know how it would feel. So when I say it, I'm still a bit self-conscious. Do I sound like a very terrible person, or you know? Um, but I mean, with all empathy, and I try to discuss it with my team with those two members, including my friend that I had hired as my first employee. So I really appreciate you guys, but like these are you know some things that we need to improve on. And we had a conversation over coming weeks and so on. But it did come to a point where I had to let the, the web designer full timer that and my best friend I had to fight him. Um, very painful. 
uh, but they're, they're fairly good terms. They're doing great right now. Um, but then after that, I became a lot more conscious about two things. I was like, number one, seems like I took a really long time to learn that. I also hired too fast. Um, so maybe I need to do it the other way around because it turns out the advice is hire very slowly, fire fast. Yes. Uh, so I was the absolute opposite. So from that point on, I became a lot more conscious. I wrote down a list of stuff. I called my VC. Uh, at this point, I was VC funded. I was like, hey, you know, like this has happened. And I have some existential crisis. Like, how do I do? And he was like, well, take a piece of paper, write down everything you and your team do every week that you've been doing for the past couple of weeks. And then write down your names next to them and see which stuff is not being done by anyone or by is being done by some of you, but it's not good quality. And then hire for those. And I did that. And I decided to go for, I guess, um, I decided to also take an approach of designing roles that maybe didn't exist, uh, inspired by Uber, because I noticed Uber had done that. They created a role called process manager to manage. It's like a product manager, but on the ground to manage the process of taxes and so on. Um, based on our product, at that point, I realized that our product and experiences were doing well, but the operations around it were not so consistent. So I um, defined a few roles. I hired a few freelancers. I told all of them, hey, let's work on one paid project for a week, for two weeks, for one month. By default, it will end after the project ends. Unless you and I like to continue, then we continue. Uh, by doing this, I allowed myself to stay fair and empathetic to the person, but also iterate quickly on the team composition until I landed on team composition that I've been happy with for the past couple of months. Very cool. Very cool. There's a lot of difficulties that come with managing uh, teams, especially as 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 you're growing. So the, these are these are incredible lessons that that you took out of that. I'm curious, looking forward and getting more into a future oriented perspective uh, in this conversation. How do you define success for the product when you look out over the next six months, 12 months? And what is one or two specific things that you must get absolutely right to maximize your odds of actually achieving that success? Yeah, six to 12 months. Um, I think it's good to derive success in six to 12 months by looking at what will success be in five years. So in five years, learning group will be the one-stop shop for learning anything. You want to learn anything, you go there, you type, I want to learn this, you get one result and it just works. Um, you won't get three billion results and so on. Um, six months, 12 months, it means for that one audience that we're going after, our founders, that we will be the one-stop shop for, for them to get founder-generated or founder-verified insights. That if you have question, if you need help or question on fundraising, sales, product, growth, management, et cetera, there's this one place where you can find the knowledge of all these other founders that was previously in their heads. Now it's here, filtered, categorized, you can easily find it. Uh, regardless of your location, um, you could be in KL in Malaysia and tap into the wisdom, the specific knowledge of a San Francisco-based founder who is building something similar to you. Very That's cool. six Very to 12 cool. months to me. When it comes Very to cool. what will be key to such a success, um, I think like any other matchmaker that wants to, it's a, we are because we are a multi-sided platform, we're connecting some supply and demand. It is extremely important for us to innovate on the matchmaking side and make sure that the friction is as low as possible to capture someone's knowledge or for someone to add their knowledge. The reality is the smartest people that we know who, who would want that, that we want to kind of download their wisdom and put in our platform, they've spent less than 15, year, 15 minutes over the past two years teaching or sharing something with the public audience. So we don't expect them to become our daily active users. It would be a great thing for us if they spend two hours in the next 12 months sharing specific knowledge that they've never shared 
unlearning loop. And if they don't do it, we go after them, we find them, we interview them, get the content, put it somewhere, you know? So friction and capturing that knowledge and tagging it is definitely going to be the key. Um, all of all our um, primary, the primary driver of our growth will be those uh, tags and how good we are at filtering because mm -hmm. demand side is already great. <laughs> like anything that we have launched over the past few years, one day, two days, it's already a few thousand uh, reach easily. If you let it be for a week, it's dozens, like, uh, like tens of thousands, uh, whether it's in-app views or whether it's like Twitter impressions and all of that uh, with no ad spend because people are looking for specific insights. Um, and it's really just like, uh, can we collect enough of them no one has seen and make it extremely easy for people to uh, get to them, the discovery and all that, yeah. Very cool, very cool. That is, that is awesome. That is awesome. Let's let's move on to a couple of co closing questions. Uh, this gets into the kind of the standard closing questions that I always ask. When building out your product, what is a tech tool that you just can't live without? Hmm. Interesting question. For me, at this point, it must be Slack or Notion because okay. I write a lot and and I read a lot and like our company primarily communicates through, I, it's, it's writing, because we're a fully remote team. So writing is very essential. Um, yeah. Okay, perfect. And if you were to give a piece of advice to another startup founder out there, what is that biggest piece of advice? <laughs> Go under learning loops and get all the, get all the <laughs> key pieces of info surfaced, right? The only startup advice is that there's no generic startup advice, therefore you should join learning. <laughs> but, but other than that, I think, I think, yeah, actually like looking at spending versus learning, that, that, is, that is extremely important, I feel like. And I feel blessed that before I even started a startup, I was surrounded by a lot of very experienced founders and operators. So I really saw how they think about money and their learning, not just, not just ROI, but the learning, because then that maximizes your ROI. So yeah, um, look at the burn rate and all that and really ask serious questions about are we learning proportionally to the amount we're spending? Very good. Uh, looking at, the, are we burning more than we're spending? That is, that is very, very good advice for any founder out there. Well, that does it for time, Sina. I want to give you a big thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. For the listeners out there that are interested in learning more about you or learning loops, how can they get in contact with you? They can send me an email at sina at learningloop.org. Uh, that is L-E-R-A-R-N-I-N-G-L-O-O-P.org. Uh, if you want to sign up for Learning Loop, go to learningloop.org. There's a link there to uh, how to build a startup. When you click that, you, you uh, go to our app and then you can see everything. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'll drop all of that info in the show notes. So if somebody didn't catch it or needs to check it out, it will be in the show notes. Uh, big thanks to you, Sina. And you. we look forward to the next episode. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of the Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. 
As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures, and this is the Sea of Startups.